Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Andy McCretis is the just retired former chief operating officer at the Central Intelligence Agency. Andy spent a career as a CIA analyst and leader of analysts. Andy joins me today for a conversation about his career and some of the key issues he faced during it. When I looked at sort of some of the WMD part of of Iraq, that describes the trap. We had people who really knew an area very, very deeply, but maybe were unwilling to look left and right of that to say, what other possibilities could there be? Now, you know, in their defense, there was from the previous Gulf War, we knew that Saddam was hiding, you know, components for a nuclear program, but we found it. We'll be right back with that discussion after a quick break. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Andy, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It's fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks, Michael. I've been wanting to do this for quite some time, and um, you just retired from CIA. Uh, Your last job there was the number three at the agency, um, so-called chief operating officer. Um, So congratulations on a great career. Thank you. Yeah, it's uh, it's 37 years. It went by uh, pretty fast. 37, wow. I only had 33, so (laughs) got me there. So what I really want to do is, you know, focus on your career because I think, you know, 
it's been such an interesting one. And I really think our listeners will be interested in it. And if we have some time, you know, we can talk about some of the issues of the day. If we don't have time, we can always have you back again. So I want to start by asking, you know, how did you end up at the agency and what was your first job? I came to the agency as a student, as a grad fellow. I'd gotten a, my bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering and I was working on my master's degree in computer science and um, I was doing a teaching assistant gig. And uh, one day when I came into, into school, there was, a, there was a little note in my in my inbox, it's not an electronic inbox. It's the old-fashioned, you know, wooden <laughs> inbox. And um, it said, "Hey, there's a information session tomorrow night. The government agency would, thought you might want to attend." And it was all sort of very mysterious, and they never really named the government agency. And so I thought, "Okay, well, what the heck?" So I, I went to the session, and you know, it was like a 90-minute-ish information session, and I it was probably 50 minutes before they actually uttered those three initials. CI. It was a very different time period in the eighties than today. You know, we, we go out to universities and we put a banner out. Yeah, yeah. Saying, you know, here's our table, you know, come talk to us. Yeah. So I came in as a as a student through CI student programs, which Michael, as you probably remember, is a just a super way to get exposure to the agency, see if it's the right fit for you. They can also see if you're a good fit for them. And and uh, it's something that's been going on for decades and it and it's going strong. So uh, a great way to enter the agency. So after doing a time as a student or, over that summer, then I came back as a full-time employee. And what I did in it, my initial job was deploying computer systems to our field locations. And so that again, this is sort of mid-80s. So, you know, cutting edge then compared to cutting edge today is it's a little bit almost laughable. But these were some of the first computers that we were putting out in the field. And so that was that was interesting, but that evolved into uh, a little more of uh, cyber operations, very rudimentary again, again, because we're talking about sort of the Model Ts of computers versus the Teslas that people have today. And there was no internet, at least not a public internet. You know, it was a research thing among universities. So, so nothing was done remotely because you didn't have that kind of access. So what I ended up doing was exploiting, you know, people's computers that, that they especially the ones that they carried around with them. I think at that time they were called portable as opposed to laptop because some of these things weighed over five pounds. So yeah. this wasn't something that you, uh, you know, just picked up and, and carried around easily. And, you know, as you imagine, this is, you know, you go places where people don't want you to be and yet you take things they don't want you to have. So it was a really interesting time period and, and a couple of very interesting jobs as an introduction to the organization. So Andy, was there personal risk involved in, in what you were doing? Well, it's a, yeah, that's an interesting question. Uh, yes, there was, but let me, let me make a little bit of context here. Well, let's call it risk with a little R compared to risk with a capital R, which, you know, you and I know officers at the agency take every day yeah. uh, in dangerous locations, meeting with dangerous people in war zones. So I don't, I want to make sure that we get this in the right context. Yes, there was some risk involved because again, I said you were in places where you know, people didn't want you to be, and clearly you were stealing information. So, you know, you had to be careful. You know, in any of those kind of jobs, you, you, you know, there's occasionally times when you have your heart beats a bit faster because you have a bit of a close call. And, you know, the interesting thing, you know, Michael, is that you did, at least for me, you, didn't, you don't think about it in the moment. You're just trying to get done what you got to get done. It, it isn't until afterwards 
that it sort of sinks in like, oh my gosh, that was pretty close. <laughs> I could have been in trouble if, you know, if uh, things had gone in a different way. So it's sometimes the nerves don't strike you till later. Right, right, for sure. So Andy, then you transition to being an analyst. Why the switch and what kind of issues did you work on early in your analytic career? The switch, you know, I, you know, I spent my first four years uh, at the agency doing what I just described. And it was really living out of a suitcase, which was fun and exciting at first. But after a while, you know, it became more and more difficult. Uh, you know, you go to places that, you know, I would tell people you typically wouldn't go to on vacation. And the way these worked at the time was there was a big whiteboard uh, in the office and you would come back from one assignment and you'd look for your name on the board to figure out where you were going next. And sometimes you had a week, sometimes you had two weeks, other times you had three days. And so that's a, you know, like got to be sort of a, an intense rhythm. And I wanted to try something different. And, I, you know, I have, as I said, at the, at the top here, I, I have a engineering degree. And so I thought, you know, maybe I should try to figure out where I can apply that more directly. And so I, I moved to do weapons analysis. And this was still the time of the, of the Soviet Union. So it was weapons analysis of the Soviet Union. And in particular, it was uh, Soviet space and their offensive space capabilities. And, you know, at that time, again, this is the late 80s, you know, Soviets had a very robust space program. You know, they had well over 100 satellites in space. Somewhere on the order of 70% of them were military for military purposes. They were weaponizing space in many ways. Some people may remember they had copied the um, space shuttle mm. and were sort of preparing to launch that. I think they call it the Buran, which I think is snowstorm in Russian. They put ASAT, they had tested ASAT weapons in space. So it was a really busy period. So I spent my time doing that until, you know, of course, 1991. And then, uh, you know, Soviet Union went poof. It was gone uh, in an instant. And that's when I sort of moved over to, to do more of the proliferation work. And you did some work on North Korea, correct? Yeah, that's sort of where I, I spent most of my time on North Korea's missile program. And um, you know, that was also uh, was becoming a really robust program. Uh, you know, it had really started in the 80s. And then by the, the earlier to mid 90s, they had made some significant advances. And they were on a pretty, pretty hefty drumbeat about uh, launching missiles. They, at the same time, they were making progress on their nuclear program. So, you know, you get a combination of those two and, and all of a sudden, you know, North Korea becomes even more concerning than, than it would just uh, normally be. So remind me, Andy, where the North Koreans got the technology to make these missiles. Yeah. So most of the, their capabilities, they were trained in Russia, Soviet Union. A lot of them went to universities there or to special training academies. So that's where they learned their, their missile technology. And then they were, you know, they were on the market purchasing components. Uh, if you took a look at, you know, many of their, of their early missiles, you, you could, you'd see their Soviet heritage. And so that's primarily the places where they went. And then certainly after the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union, you know, there was that issue where there were Soviet scientists basically for hire sort of looking for work. And the North Koreans took advantage of some of those opportunities and brought Russian missile and nuclear engineers into North Korea to further advance their programs. So 
if I remember correctly, it was during this time that you first met somebody that you and I both admire very much, George Tenet, who was the deputy director of CIA and then the director of CIA. Is that right? Right. Yeah, I met him. Uh, he was the deputy when I met him. And what did you think of him? He's a you know bigger than life character. Yeah. So you know, once the you know when the, this briefing got scheduled to talk to him about some North Korea issues, you know, so it's a big deal, right? To to sit down and spend time with the deputy director or the director of CIA for that matter, of course. And so you know, it was myself and a couple of other people from my team, and you know, we spent we must have spent a solid week <laughs> preparing for it's, it's and it was all material we knew, but all of a sudden it's you know you're playing at a different level, so. So we spent about a week going through the briefing, uh, murder boarding, which is sort of dry runs, and what kinds of questions could he ask, so on and so forth. So we had the briefing, and it, it, it went fine. And then as we finished, George pointed at me and said, can you stay back? And so you're not really sure what that's, that is the first time. <laughs> good that or happened. bad, right? <laughs> it could be good or bad. It, you know, it's like the teacher saying that, hold on. Um, and so, you know, everyone left the room and, you know, he's a very, Michael, as you know, and anybody who's met him knows he's a very warm, cordial person. So he looks at me and he just stares at me for a second. And then he says to me, dinomizis, which is Greek for what do you think? And so it's like, <laughs> okay, I didn't prepare for this question. <laughs> All right. So it was both a, you know asking me what I thought about the discussion because it was a bit of a controversial issue we were talking about. But it was also, you know, like a quick test of my Greek to make sure that, uh, you know, that's <laughs> that you were my, for real. That's for real. That you were a real I, Greek. And that I passed, yeah. Uh, so, you know, George, like I said, it, this is such a warm uh, and disarming guy. I mean, I could just digress for one moment, Michael. You know, when, you know he, I had him come back in. This was a few years ago. And to, to talk to about something, and we, and we went to the cafeteria to have lunch because we wanted to go to cafeteria. And as we were sitting there, two of the people that work in the cafeteria that had been there forever came out to say hello to him. And so I, I think that gives you a sense for how George connects with people of, of all types. You know, I found him to be really intuitive, clearly very smart. He, you know, he asked hard questions but they were fair questions. And the nub of the questions always sort of cuts the heart of like, you know, what the issue was. They weren't, you know, su superfluous questions. And as you probably know, Michael, he, he's very strategic in his thinking. You know, he, you can tell he's piecing things together. And then I guess maybe lastly, especially when you first get to know me, I, you know, I had the sense that he was not only assessing what I said, but he was assessing me in, in the sense of, you know, does this guy know what he's talking about? You know, is he comfortable with what he's saying? Is he just reading a script? You know, all those those other factors that go into into uh, tr trust building, I guess. And for those listeners who don't know, George is Greek, and he's very proud of his Greek heritage. Hence the the story that you just told. Um, so, Andy, I think you soon become a manager of analysts on missiles and nuclear issues, and then you have the sort of out-of-body experience where you become an executive assistant for John McLaughlin, who's then the deputy director, to George Tennant, who is by that time director. And I want to sort of ask you, what does an executive assistant do for a senior agency officer? You know, what was the day-to-day -day like? And, and what did you learn in that experience? It was a fascinating 
job. In some ways, you, you become a little bit of the alter ego for the, the person that you're, you're working for, trying to, you know, put yourself in their shoes to try to understand what, what is it that they need? When do they need it? So you become a, a, a bit of a filter. You're sometimes the front door for people that need to, you know, that need to see your, your principal, whoever that, that person is. You're also an organizer, you know, tr- because as you know, from those jobs, Michael, they're, they're, it's a fire hose. Yeah. And, and so you, you end up spending a lot of time doing triage and trying to understand, you know, of all these important things, which things rise to the top and what do I have to make sure that my principal sees? In this case, it was John McLaughlin. And, you know, it's a tricky thing because you also have to figure out when to show him things or her because, you know, showing something to him two weeks early, it's going to get lost and forgotten. If you show it to him the day after, well, clearly you missed the boat. So it, it's sort of trying to get that timing right and also trying to really understand how he or she thinks and works. People work differently. You know, some people want to see lots of material. Some want to see a little bit. They want you to filter more or less depending on their personal likes and dislikes. So, and you have to sort of figure that out and you've got to figure it out pretty quick and you have to be right. You know, and, and that, you know, that's a bit of a break-in period where Hopefully you have a principal who gives you a little bit of slack, like, like Sean McLaughlin certainly did with me. And so, you know, the other thing that, you know, I found myself doing that I'm sure that, that you did when you worked upstairs, Michael, is you, you sort of, when you go into these meetings, you, you try to read the room and you try to sort of figure out, is there anything that's not being said? Yeah. And, and why, why isn't that being said? And, and then you, you sort of do some behind the scenes work to figure out, you know, what's going on here? Is there something more to this? I think uh, building a, a network is, you know, sometimes maybe job one because there's the org chart way of doing things and, you know, looking people up in the phone book and all that kind of thing. But you and I both know that's not really the way things work. You know, you have the right people, the right context, and you can sort of figure out what's going on across the agency because, you know, in many cases, the principal is sort of looking at you to think, to, to sort of get an idea of like, what are people thinking? You know, what's going on to, to get the, the gist because, you know, it, as you get in these jobs, the more senior the job, you don't have as much of that contact and it's sort of hard to figure things out. You know, I worked for John and, and Michael, both you and I know John McLaughlin. He's certainly one of the best, a real gentleman. Uh, he told me his words of advice to me when I started were, Andy, I just want to tell you that do you have one thing that you should remember above all else. And I said, sure, John, what's that? And he said, one day you will be released back into the general population and you won't have protection of the warden. <laughs> so conduct yourself accordingly. Uh, That's good advice. I wish George had. I wish George had given me that advice when I was his EA. <laughs> now, of course, I, I was going to say a lot of this got put to the test on 9/11 because I was up there working for for John on 9/11, and you know, I he was in a VTC, a, a video conference in another room, and you know, after the first plane struck, we were like, what? That was was that an accident? What what happened? Right. And then the second plane struck, and it was like, okay, well, now we know it's not an accident. So, you know, I you know I had to go to another room down the hall and, and find him, and people were already beginning to talk about it. And then, and then I saw the monumental decisions that they had to make, George and John, right then and there. There was no time to let's have a meeting to discuss. You know, do we evacuate the building? Who do we tell that has to stay? You know, you know, do we leave the seventh floor, which we did because that's the most vulnerable place you can be, right on the top floor of the building. And so some of those things that I sort of learned along the way in the networks became 
hugely valuable because at that point you're just, you know, you're acting on instinct and you're calling and talking to people. There's no time to sort of start flipping through phone books or, you know, figure out, well, who's the chief of that or who's the deputy over here or there. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to be right back with more of our discussion with Andy McCretis. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. So then Andy, George Tennant then asks you to replace me as the daily intelligence briefer for President Bush. Do you remember your first day when I took you on what was my last day and introduced you to President Bush? Oh my gosh, it's indelibly burned into my brain. (laughs) Uh, Mine too, actually. (laughs) So up until that day, right, I hadn't actually met the president yet. I, you know, helped you prepare in the morning and, and that kind of stuff. And what everyone kept saying, including you, was, oh, you just great brief. It, you know, it's going to, you know, presidents, you know, you'll, you'll love briefing him. I'm like, He's a great oh, guy. Sounds... He's nice. He's really nice. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All that. So I'm like, oh, okay. Well, this, this is, this is cakewalk, right? And so, of course, so we, show, we showed up that day and that was the day that you had to tell him that we didn't get Osama bin Laden in Tora Bora. Yeah, that he escaped across the border. That he escaped across the border. And his reaction was hmm, strong. Is that the way to put it? Yeah, uh, angry, 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 deeply frustrated. Uh, deeply frustrated, rightly so, right? And I don't know, Michael, because I couldn't see my face, but <laughs> I'm sure you could. <laughs> But what was going through my mind was, oh my God, what have I gotten into here? Yeah. One of the things that you didn't say, Andy, was he blamed me initially, right? Yes. Um, he said, how did you let this happen? <laughs> right? And I'm thinking, I yeah. wasn't anywhere near the place, right? What yes. are you going to do about this, right? And yeah. he meant you, right, in the, in the much the broader way. term. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, no, he shot he shot the messenger. I remember that and I was thinking, oh my God, I, I, I'm going to be collateral here somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so what were your what were your impressions of him? You briefed him for a couple of years. What were your impressions of him? 
look, I, you know, I, I thought, first of all, you, once you spend time, you realize like, okay, I understand now how you got to become president. You know, much like George, you know, he asked really good questions. And you could tell that he was piecing together a puzzle of, you know, what actions am I going to take? You know, he's, he's got the input from the intelligence community, but he also has lots of other you know, people talking to him, some people calling him personally, foreign leaders telling him things. So, you know, I found him to be to be pretty astute as he was weighing these things out because you could sort of, even if you, sometimes he didn't say it, you could sort of see what, you know, he was he was wrestling with. In the whole time, you know, three years that I did that job, the most difficult day, Michael, was that first morning. And, the, you know, the rest of the time we had, you know, we were in Afghanistan, there was Iraq, Iraq WMD, all that. And, and the president was very gracious. I mean, he, I think, you know, we spent, we would spend almost an hour a day in the briefing. Uh, so it was from, from eight to nine. Uh, and there was a, a bit of a, a last part of it was mostly terrorism, but it's an hour of the president's day. And so, you know, you really felt like you were really contributing. And and to be honest with you, what I, I don't know what you thought, Michael, about it being a briefer, but the days that I thought I was successful or that, that the agency was successful were, were days where you created a discussion. Not that they always agreed. I mean, you, you know, just saying, oh, they agreed today. They liked the book. Well, that, that doesn't really tell me anything. Right, right. It's the right. days where all of a sudden, even if it was, if it was like, we don't agree, but you got it, you had a discussion going. So you, you realize, okay, I've, I've scratched an issue. I've raised a, an issue they may not have thought through fully, or there's an angle here that, that they didn't sort of get to or see. But I, I found the president to be very intuitive and a, and a really good judge. And I, I can tell you at the end here about uh, after we finish the, or whenever you want about my, my last day, which sort of shows this intuitive piece. Well, yeah, go ahead. Tell, tell uh, us about that. So my last day, uh, or actually it was a day I was going to tell him I was leaving. It was after Christmas and we were flying down to uh, Texas and we were on the airplane and I finished the briefing because as you know, he took the briefing on the airplane. And then uh, when we finished, I sort of closed my book and I said, Mr. President, if, if I can just talk to you for a minute, I have one more thing to discuss with you. And he looked, and so I hadn't never done that before. Yeah. So he looked at me and he said, is this an I'm leaving discussion? <laughs> I was like, oh God. <laughs> and um, it was a very difficult discussion because he asked questions like, is there a better job at CIA than this one? <laughs> so thankfully Andy Card came in and, and rescued me. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. That is, yeah. that, that is Sir George Bush. So Andy, after you finished the briefing job, you took over the analytic group that covered the technical aspects of nuclear weapons programs around the world. And this was just in the aftermath of our failure, our analytic failure, right, on Iraq weapons of mass destruction. And just very quickly, I'd like to get your assessment of, of what you think went wrong on Iraq and how did we learn from our mistakes and how did it change the analysis done at CIA? Yeah. So look, you know, as you and I know, Michael, I think, you know, both on the analytic and operational side, we, we just didn't do a great job. You know, we let the, the president down, the, you know, the nation down. We certainly let George and, and John down because uh, we just didn't have the rigor. And I think what happened on the analytics side is, you know, if I could just quickly summarize it in, in one in one way, there's um, there was a book a few years back by a guy named Phil Tetlock, 
Uh, he's a professor at UPenn, I believe. And it's called uh, like an uh, expert political judgment. In his book, he references something actually from, a, from a, an ancient Greek play about a fox and a hedgehog. And the phrase is, a fox knows many tricks, a hedgehog knows one good one. And Tedlock took that and, and started talking about experts. And experts are hedgehogs, right? They, they know one thing and they know it really well. And he sort of characterizes the peril sometimes or the, the, the pitfalls you can fall to in, into if you're an expert when you just know that one thing. And, and when, I, when I looked at sort of some of the WMD part of, of, of Iraq, it, that describes the trap. We, we, we had people who really knew an area very, very deeply, but maybe were unwilling to look left and right of that to say, what other possibilities could there be? Now, you know, in their defense, that there was, you know, from the previous Gulf War, we knew that Saddam was hiding, you know, components for a nuclear program, but we found it. And so it's, this is a little bit like, you know, you see in the courtroom dramas where the judge says to the jury, disregard what you just heard. And of course, the jury can't. And so you've got that past history in these people's minds. And then it's easy to begin to fit everything into that, you know, picture without listening to the foxes, let's say, who are saying, you know, there's other possibilities here. And so I, I think that's what really happened. What's a great way to think about it. What changed, of course, post the Rock WMD was, you know, really starting to take a look at how do we do analysis? How do we make sure we look at all the alternatives? How do we build that in to how people do analysis as opposed to an afterthought or a nice to have? Let's make that a requirement for all the major issues that we're, we're following. Look at, you know, and there are various, they're called structured analytic techniques, and there's a lot of them. And you can apply them, you know, depending on, on whatever issue you're working so that you begin to paint the full picture. It doesn't mean you're going to be right, but at least you have, you know, created the envelope in, in which you think we're, you know, the situation that we're in. And so I think that's the big change. And I, I think the, the work that comes out of the agency is significantly better because of that, of those changes. Yeah, I agree. I, I agree 100% with that. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. Stay with us. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at Squeezed.com. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. So, Andy, one of the issues that followed Iraq by just a few years was, and you were involved in this, was what we thought was the discovery of a clandestine nuclear power plant in Syria. And I'm wondering how tough was it to convince the White House that we had this right, right, that this was a covert nuclear reactor, 
when we got Iraq so wrong just a few years earlier? Yeah, so, you know, the first reaction was exactly what you described. Well, you were wrong about Iraq. Why are you confident you're right about this? Now, so this is just, you're right, just a few years after, but I think one of the big differences is in those few years, the director of intelligence now, the director of analysis, put a lot more rigor into the, the things we just discussed. And so we did one of the most thorough scrubs that, I, that I've certainly ever participated in or seen of looking at all the possibilities. So this building was, was out in the eastern desert in Syria near a place called Darozar and near the Euphrates. Nothing out there. The building was built in a, in a wadi and a, a depression. So you couldn't actually see it from the, the road, not, not much of a road. but And so you got an, a construction of a building. And by the time we'd actually seen the building, it had you know what we call curtain walls, but the building looked pretty innocuous. And actually looking at it, if I looked at it today, it looks like a data center. It's got the same kind of construction with very few windows. You know, it's that kind of look to it. Now, of course, it was a bit suspicious. There was no power. And I'm going, what? kind of plant are you building with no power to it? There was a, a pump house being built down near the river, the Euphrates, clearly with to run water back and forth. And so you start to think cooling right away. And then we, you know, we were able to, to acquire photos of the inside. And as soon as the nuclear analysts that worked for me saw that, they said, this is Yongbyong. Yongbyong, for your listeners, is the North Korean uh, nuclear facility. And so you know, we put all that together and I think we were able to make a compelling case, but it, it all sort of rested on the fact that we had done all that work in the intervening couple of years to bring that rigor that we just discussed into the analysis. Yeah, I should tell my listeners that CIA actually produced a video of all of this analysis and put it out publicly when President Bush announced, you know, what we had found um, and after the Israelis had, had actually destroyed the reactor, and they can actually go to the internet and Google CIA presentation on Syrian nuclear reactor, and they can actually look at a piece of CIA analysis, which is a pretty rare thing. So Andy, then you had a variety of senior leadership posts, most involving analysis of weapons work, and then the CIA's own science and technology programs. But one of the assignments you had as a senior officer was running, you know, not a technical office, but a, but a regional office, actually the Office of Asian and Latin American Analysis. And I just wondered how different it was managing political analysts and leadership analysts and economists compared to scientists and engineers. That's a great question. There's one really, at least what, you know, what I took away was one really important distinction between them. And it's because of the kind of work they do. So when I, you know, ran the, the Asia Pacific Latin America Africa office, you know, you're, as you mentioned, it's political scientists, economists, uh, leadership analysts. They deal with ambiguity in a much better way than engineers, right? Engineers are driven to solve for the answer, right? And yeah, if there's yeah. ambiguity, they'll put in a safety factor or whatever the case is, but they're driven to solve because most engineering problems are solvable, right? Unfortunately for, you know, political analysts, they... Sometimes those are not solvable problems. So they, they need to get com- they get comfortable with living in a world of ambiguity, which engineers hate. Right. So you, so you just get a, you get a stark difference between the two of them when you talk to them. Cause like I said, engineers will give you an answer that can be very literal sometimes. And they don't, 
And so sometimes you've got to be careful about what questions you're asking them. On the other side, with the sort of the regional analysts, they're, they can be more broad and they can give you a, a broader set of answers, but oftentimes they don't give you the answer. That's what struck me the most from managing these two. And so, you know, when I went back from the, from the Asia office back to, the, to run the, the technical office, you know, I, I sort of talked to my engineers and I said, you guys got to get a little more comfortable with ambiguity <laughs> because I've just watched how that works. And it's important because not, we're not going to have the answers to all these questions. And uh, it's, a, it's a very difficult transition for someone who's used to just doing the math. Yeah, for sure. So Andy, one of the, one of the assignments that you had later in your career was leading an investigation of a leak related to WikiLeaks and how the CIA should manage itself going forward. What was that like? Yeah, so you know we had a we had a breach. I think one of the prosecutors in New York, I think he called it one of the most brazen uh, and damaging acts of espionage in U.S. history. So it was an it was an insider issue. A significant amount of material was taken out of the agency, and so there was two parts to this. There was the who did it, and that was sort of the purview of the counterintelligence folks and the FBI because it's a crime. And then there was the what happened. How did it happen, and how do we make sure it doesn't happen again? Part, and that's sort of the part that fell to the the group of people that I was leading. It's sort of a human nature issue, right? We we get pressed for doing things and doing things quickly, and so we began to take shortcuts. And not only does you know people in the agency do this, but people in general do this. You know, they just to, for expediency's sake, they'll make things easier on themselves. And for an organization that's supposed to be you know careful to not do that we fell into that trap. So by doing so, we made it a lot easier for someone who had ill intent to get a lot of material because not all the watertight doors were closed, a variety of things that happened. You know, we, for the longest time we operated on this, we have a moat and a drawbridge. And once the drawbridge is down, you get over the moat, you're in the castle. Mm. And that's really not the way anything operates today. If you take a look at, at the world of cybersecurity, it's a zero trust where you know they're inspecting you at every moment, not you physically, but every time you're query for information. So it's moving in that direction. What I'm happy to say is that, you know, in the in the sort of several years since that time, huge progress has been made, I think, at the agency to really make sure we lock down and secure our systems to be able to do things quickly and securely. It's not a trade. And I think for a while there we were looking at it as a trade. We can get it done fast, but we have to take shortcuts. Well, that that doesn't work. So I think learning how to operate in a secure way and still getting the mission critical things done is important. Let's face it, the, the organization where the, the information came was so pressed because there were so many demands on their time, they, they sort of felt like they were in a corner and there were ways around this. And I, I think the systems and the, and the, the changes that the agency has made since then have, have really helped make this a much more secure environment while still getting the job done. Yeah. So Andy, finally, you end up as the agency's chief operating officer, the so-called coup, <laughs> which is, you know, private organizations don't call it a coup. They call it the COO. Yeah. Um, I just thought I'd mention that. that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what does the coup do at CIA? So look, it's a huge range, right? It's, it's everything, and Michael, you know this really well, it's everything from the strategic, you know, budget, what, the, what are the future tech needs of the agency, the future of the workforce, 
what's the strategic plan? What are the impediments to getting things done? All the way down to the, you know, what's going on with parking, which is always the bane of <laughs> and space. <laughs> and and the next thing I was going to say, space inside the building. You know, people are always jockeying for a position. So it's or the caf- or issues with the cafeteria. So you're one of the people that used to have the job told me it was like being the mayor of a big city. Uh, That's a great way to put it. Yeah, I guess so. You're confronted with the full range of, you know, let's think about the budget in five years to, you know, how do we speed up service in the cafeteria? You become, it's a jack of all trades job. And, you know, you, you got to be able to, as you know, Michael, move from topic to topic to topic to topic and, and not let your, especially for an analyst, not let your instincts to just go deep on everything you know, take over, right? Because you just, you don't have the time. Yeah, yeah. So, so let me ask about COVID, which perhaps was the biggest issue that you had to deal with when you were um, the chief operating officer. Yeah. So, you know, March 2020. This is another thing I remember pretty vividly. I remember it was March, Friday the 13th, if I'm correct. And, you know, we, I started feeling like there was a you were sitting on the beach and there was this big wave coming at you, and you started to realize that's a lot bigger than it looks and I'm not going to be able to get out of the way. And so, you know, uh, Gina Haspel and Vaughn Bishop, the director and the deputy at the time, you know, we got together and that, you know, they, you know, they gave me a lot of running room and said, just do what it takes to make sure that we can operate and we keep the place safe. So, you know, we convened a bunch of meetings. We, we cut the workforce in half, alternated weeks to, because of course we couldn't work from home. So in order to keep that, you know, social distancing piece in a building that, as you just referenced, it was already full space-wise. Uh, we had to do some extraordinary things. We, you know, we had gotten we had a company out in California make masks for us because, as you remember, masks were in short supply. We had put sanitizers, hand sanitizers everywhere. And there were so many unknowns. You know, we weren't sure if you could get it off a desk or, you know, where, where you could get it. And so trying to keep the workforce safe so that, because we couldn't close. Uh, and we couldn't just have everyone sort of come down with COVID. And, you know, that was a time period where we just didn't know how serious it was. You know, we were thinking about what what if we have a lot of casualties? How do we deal with that? I mean, as terrible as that sounds, you know, you're in an unknown, uncharted territory. And so this was a huge team effort. Um, Michael, you know this, nobody does crisis better than CIA. And, you know, as soon as you're in crisis mode, boy, things click. And so um, I just happened to sort of be the, you know, the, the band leader at the time, but it was a great push. And then, you know, then the second part of that was getting vaccine because we had to vaccinate our people as quickly as we could. And, and I think we were the first government agency to, to broadly distribute vaccine within the workforce. So again, a huge team effort, a lot of credit to, to a lot of people who just put everything else aside and, you know, got it done. And I know Andy, that you created a a business analytics unit uh, for the first time at CIA. And I know that that played a huge role in the COVID, in managing COVID as well. Yeah, it sure did. And it was, you know, a little bit of stroke of luck. We, we set it up in 2019 because you sort of realized that we weren't getting consistent business data. You know, how many people here? How many people work here? You know, those kind of questions. You know, who's retiring? When are they retiring? You know, all the kinds of things that most businesses want. We were not getting consistent answers. So we set up this, an agency business analytics unit to help pool all that information together so that we could get consistent answers over time. And my God, they, you know, being able to do that, have that set up and have it running for almost a year before COVID allowed us to, you know, determine where people were, who was in the building, contact tracing, 
was magical. And that was all because of the, the work that business analytics had done, the tools they had developed. So it was a lot of good fortune because, again, that we set that up in 19. And, you know, no one was thinking how critical it would be when you have to manage a workforce that's facing a pandemic. Then there was the Afghan withdrawal, Andy. Walk us through the role that you played there. So, you know, once the, you know, the president made the announcement about, you know, withdrawing from Afghanistan, you know, that, you know, we began the serious planning of how do we move people out, material. I mean, we'd been there for you know, 20 years. And so a lot of, you know, material accrues that you just don't want to fall into the wrong hands. And so, you know, the biggest credit here, Michael, goes to the director of support, director of operations. They did phenomenal work in making sure that we, you know, had a all the material tag that we could get out, material we couldn't get out, we destroyed, making sure we had all our people safe, help get Afghans out of the country. My job was like, if there's a roadblock, tell me, I'll get it out of the way. And you, I mean, they drove and they did a, a phenomenal job. Andy, just one more question. You've been retired just a few weeks now. What are your plans going forward? Well, I'll just sort of catch my breath for this month, I guess here in December. Uh, look, Michael, I want to stay engaged and challenged. I, I still feel too young to sort of retire, retire. You know, but after 37 years managing and leading a, you know, a complex and worldwide organization, I, I really do think I have things I could share. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, look for some opportunities to share those things, you know, where applicable. I guess probably more of a portfolio approach to retirement or maybe the next phase. I shouldn't call it retirement because I, I suspect you can get very busy. You know, we talked about some of the, the changes that are coming and we touched on tech briefly a couple of times. And, and I know we didn't get to some of the current issues, but, you know, I think you and I agree that we're, we're facing an economic cold war. And I think the pivot point of that cold war is tech. And I think no more, is it more pronounced than sort of the intersection between emerging and disruptive technology and national security in areas like space, biotech, computing, autonomy, communications. I think those are big key areas. And so, you know, having a technical background and having all this sort of national security experience, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that somewhere in that intersection of those that I can find places where I can, uh, where I can add value and, and help people. I think your phone's going to ring for sure. <laughs> I'm pretty confident it is. So, so we didn't get to the substantive stuff, Andy, and I'm sorry about that. We'll have to have you back and talk about that. In fact, I'd love to have you on the show again. That you would be a great guest host, um, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> or you'd be a great person to join me every once in a while to talk about what's going on in the world. Oh, that'd be um, just to have a conversation. Yeah. So that would be great too. So we should keep that in mind. We but could swap. We thank, could swap uh, Waco stories. <laughs> we could swap. <laughs> we could swap pulling brush stories, which pulling we didn't even talk stories. about. So yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so thank you for joining us, and uh, we will talk with you again. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. That was Andy McCretis. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Paulina Smolinski, and Reggie Bazile. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.